Welcome to Fluency with Dr. Darrell Cooper. I am your host, Dr. Darrell Cooper. Fluency is a show where we will talk about things that come to mind. This show is a unscripted. I mean, it can't be fluency and we have trouble talking about different things, right? So thank you so much for joining us. Sit back and enjoy this audio experience. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Fluency. I cannot be more thrilled today than to be joined by the amazing Dr. Rihanna C. Rogers. She is the inaugural director of the Center to Advance Racial Equity Policy and a policy researcher at RAND Corporation. And just an overall incredibly dope individual who has such an interesting trajectory in her life and career. Um, and we definitely will have enough time to get into all that. First, I would like to thank Grantmakers in the Arts for being such a generous sponsor of this uh, series of fluency that we're doing here. And welcome. Welcome, Dr. Rogers. How are you? Thank you. It's great to see you, Dr. Cooper. Uh, it's so <laughs> wonderful to be back. Um, we can drop that because you know I'm the anti-doctor doctor. So I know. let's say Rihanna and Darrell. There you go. Um, for everyone who's listening, uh, thank you for listening. Um, I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have today. I am. I am too. So let's let's first get into your origin story. What was it like for young Rihanna, like growing up? Um, what was it like your family dynamic? Uh, anything that you would care to share about your origin story? Sure. So, I mean, I've led a very eclectic life. So I'm going to start with that. Um, although I know women aren't supposed to say their age, I'm in my 40s. I've already had four different careers in my life. Um, so let me start in the beginning. Uh, I was an exceptional softball player. For those who don't know, I played on the Junior Olympic team. Uh, I'm actually in the Hall of Fame in California for softball. So I was really what? Yes. Yeah, so my my origin story starts as an athlete. Um, both my parents were athletes, so I'll kind of explain that. My parents uh, got married literally six years after the anti-miscegenation laws were repealed. So I'm multiracial woman. I literally am 12 races. My parents, my dad ran track and my mom played tennis. And uh, my mom was ranked in tennis in California. My dad did track and then he blew out his legs. So he didn't actually go um, to college. So my parents never made it to college, but both of them had uh, scholarships to go. And so imagine growing up with like kind of two athletes themselves. I was an athlete very young. I started playing uh, softball at four and basketball at five and running track myself. So I was a multi-sport athlete growing up, uh, played soccer as well. Um, but yeah, I got really, really dedicated. And I think my softball career is really what brought me into higher education. Most people don't know that. I was telling this story yesterday. Um, I always wanted to be a doctor, but I also wanted to play in the Olympics. Uh, so I actually was uh, on the fourth ranked softball team in the nation when I was in college. And I was team captain of that team. And so we were really, really, really good. And the way that I actually got connected to academia was uh, 
we were the best at my school. So think about this back in the nineties, women athletics were not a thing really. Uh, people weren't really supporting us, but we were the best team on my campus. That was a really big deal. Um, some of the male athletes didn't really like it, but whatever. Um, but one of the things that was really great was like all of the academics kind of followed us. They were really excited about us. And one person specifically, Dr. Sandra Norman, who at the time was the um, department chair of history, like really followed my career. I went to her office and I talked to her all the time. She took an active interest in me. And I remember I was getting ready to come back to California to coach, to teach, to do all this stuff, kind of K to 12. And she walked over to me after one of our last games and said, I think you would be a really great college professor. I think you should really consider this. Um, I never had actually really considered it. I always said I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to do archaeology, but I never really had a pathway and nobody really gave me that opportunity until Dr. Norman. And uh, I sat at home and I thought about it and I could have gone continuing because I retired from softball when I graduated from my undergrad degree. And I was just telling you, Darrell, I graduated at 20, so I was very young. And I sat down and I had to make a life decision, which was... Am I going to go the athletics route or am I going to go the academic route? And after talking to lots and lots of people, I decided to go the academic route. And that's what led me to where I am today. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, let's So let's talk a little bit more about the, the academic route piece, because, um, you know, we were talking before you have over a 20 year teaching career and along that road, you have garnered quite a few awards um, and, you know, ultimately culminating in the 2017-2018 SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching, which, you know, that is not the the most recent award that you won, uh, but that is definitely one where they don't give out uh, that uh, that many of those (laughs) over the course of those 21 years. And so first, congratulations for that. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, what has sort of helped you excel in that realm of of academia and then maybe some of the, you know, interesting stories or or obstacles that might have come up along the way uh, navigating in that space in, you know, the, the body that you occupy. Yeah. So I have to say sports gave me a lot of soft skills to be, uh, self-determined. I think one of the differences about me coming into academia in a very non-traditional way, where it wasn't like the goal that I had laid out originally in front of me, I was able to transfer a lot of skills like self-determination, practice, you know, all these kind of soft skills that you get from kind of sports and team athletics that I played on helped push me forward. Like I knew what it was to be the best in my sport. I didn't want to go to a new profession and not be the best. Like that is just part of my nature. And so I dedicated myself. I will tell all of you out there, I wasn't the best student when I got into my master's degree, even though I got in at 20. um, I had to sit in the writing center every day, every week to improve my writing skills because I really wanted to be the best. I wanted to spend that extra time, just like I would spend extra hours practicing when in softball, I did the same thing with that, with, with academics and I aligned myself. I found mentors, all of these skills and tricks that I learned from playing a sport where you would go to your coaches. If you needed additional help, I found my coaches in, a, in academics and I would ask them questions and I would say, what do I need to do? It was really difficult. So I will tell you this, um, 
I am pretty stubborn. Uh, I will, I will say that I chose to play softball. Please know this in the nineties, there weren't many women of color playing softball at the time I played. I chose a sport that wasn't a sport for women of color and I excelled in it. Um, I did, I will tell you my biggest award from then was I won the Martin Luther King award my senior year for breaking down barriers. So that's just also part of my personality. So then just to tell you this, I decided I wanted to become an archeologist. So any of you listening out there, Archaeology, you know, when the AAA did a study and so did the Society of American Archaeology, the profession is changing today. But when I got into it back in the like 90s, early 2000s, it was about 97% white males, right? So I chose a profession once again that was, let me see if I can do this. Let me see if I can break into a space that hasn't been developed for me. Um, because I really wanted to do it. Now, I will also tell you this too, which was really important. I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. And as anybody knows, there's a lot of research out there about women of color being discouraged from being scientists. Because I come from a very um, diverse background, you know, my mom, if you would see her, she's she's a white lady. And she's always was like, Rihanna, you can grow up to be whatever you want to be. And she truly believed in it. And she instilled that in me. And I was like, look, I don't really care about the dynamics that are around me. I will be the one that will stop me. You have to get into kind of my heart for me to decide that I have to stop. It doesn't matter what you say externally. If that's what I desire to do, I'm going to do it. And so uh, that was really what kind of drove me to continue with archaeology. I will be honest, and, you know, Darrell, you've asked, there was a lot of very difficult times. I actually wrote this in a couple of book chapters about how difficult of times um, I had, you know, including like things like, Hashtag me too stuff, because remember, I'm in a male dominated field. So there is a lot of very serious things about science, but I knew that if I could do it, just like in softball, I could open the door for other people. And I've always kind of taken on that role, even in my position now, uh, where, you know, I came, I came to Rand and at the time, you could count on less than three fingers, the number of women leadership at Rand, a 75 year old organization. And I was literally uh, one of the first, there is only one other woman that was a woman, uh, African-American female of color ever in senior administration prior to me. So that's also something too. I knew that I knew that stepping in and I use that as a challenge. Again, I think it goes back to athletics because I, I really want to break down barriers and create more opportunity. So individuals coming behind me can have more opportunity than even I've had. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, you said so many interesting things that I, I want to come come back to. But what I'm sort of hearing as like a, a through line, it's, it's one, it is just how much of a pioneer you've been in so many different areas of your of your life, you know, and, you know, the work that you're doing now at RAND and even before RAND, but in your research, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility has always been core and central to what it is that, that you've been doing. And, and now, I guess, at, at your current position at RAND, you know, it, it is the center to advance racial equity policy. Um, what, how, how, do, how would you define uh, racial equity? Um, and uh, what are some of the, the strategies that you see as uh, key in order for us to, to be able to advance that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think it really, 
it's really kind of a complicated question. So I'll I'll kind of start by giving you the definition and then maybe walk back a few steps of even how I got to RAND, because I think that also matters too in this, this journey we're discussing. But to me, um, when you're thinking about racial equity, it's really about applying a lens to all the work that you do. The goal of racial equity, which is different than equality, so I want to clarify that. People sometimes confuse these terms. Equality means that you're creating a universal standard for all, right? So someone that may be excelling very high or someone that's might not excelling at all, you kind of push that group at the top down and you push that group on the bottom up and you create this middle standard. We know from experiences that that doesn't always work, Um, especially if you don't have scaffolding in place and especially if you're making assumptions about large populations that have very disparate experiences. So that's equality. Equity is meeting people where they are. Instead of making those assumptions that everybody can meet a universal standard, you're really trying to determine where people sit in this spectrum of needs so that you're really working with individuals to close the gaps. And it's it's just another way of saying that you're trying to equalize that playing field by taking away the assumptions that we typically we think about. Um, I'll give you an example of a project that that I was talking about recently that involved indigenous peoples. And it was working with a national uh, organization in the United States. I'll be very vague about these things. But they were asking because they wanted to drill down to indigenous people. So we haven't talked about this yet, but I have a good 20 years of working in tribal politics. It's one of my four careers I mentioned in the beginning. So I have a lot of connections in tribal communities in and out of the United States. And from my work working alongside tribes, I, I know that not all tribes are the same. And But that's not the way that we've cast that kind of image inside of public opinion, especially in the United States, especially through movies and film. We kind of show them looking the same, whether it be every indigenous person is in a teepee or they're riding horses, all of these stereotypical things. Well, unless we break those stereotypes down, people think that that's truth. And so one of the problems is, is we don't have, uh, you know, education that actually equitably looks at indigenous peoples throughout all of our curriculum. We don't have that right now across the United States. And so when I'm talking with national organizations, you're saying we really want the voice of indigenous people. They're thinking that there is one universal voice. And what's problematic about that in equity studies is that there's not. So in the United States right now, we have over 550 federally recognized tribes with their own governments, with their own constitutions, with their own languages, and with their own kind of governmental structures. Each one of them is different. That's just counting federally recognized. There's still like 1,500 state recognized and there's about 2,000 people going through the process right now. So just think about that's United States. That's not counting Canada. That's not counting Mexico. That's not counting anyone else. So when you think about these things and someone asks, we want to drill down. As, as an equity scholar and as a consultant working on this, I usually will kind of push back to people and say, how many people are indigenous in your data set? And I will tell you in this particular case, there were six. And so I'm like, you can't really talk about the entirety of all of those number of people with six people. So I asked them to drill a little bit deeper. And I said, where are those six people from? And they were all from the Northeast. And so I said, you really can't, you really can't speak about indigeneity overall if you only have six Northeastern groups represented in your study sample. So that's the difference of equality and equity, which I think is important. So when you put racial equity on top of that, it's now uh, even bigger where you're intentionally disaggregating all of the various racialized groups and their subgroups. So it's not just living at the top of that group and saying that they themselves are, quote unquote, the same. 
I'll, I'll give you an example, an African-American experience. You know, there's also a tendency that media has highlighted kind of hip hop culture as being the culture of African-American culture when it's a subculture. And so one of the things as a racial equity scholars, I have to remind people of that is that just because you might see an individual in the hip hop community, that doesn't mean everybody behaves that way. Those who belong to that community behave or might behave that way. It depends, but you can't assume everyone does. And so these are really critical points about racial equity development in research design that you have to really be deliberate at the beginning of the project so that you don't build in assumptions and biases. Wow. You know, that that explanation of it is probably the most uh, succinct sort of way I've been able to like uh, grapple with like these terms and these ideas. Um, What what current uh, projects or like research projects um, or policies are you currently working on that? is motivating you to sort of, uh, you know, get up in the morning and like, uh, and, and, and wrestle with these, these ideas and these concepts. So I would say that my work is my passion. It's, I don't, I don't feel like I have a job. I feel like this is what I'm meant to do. Uh, I always cheesily say this to people, but I believe I'm here to make the world a better place. Um, I jokingly call myself a happy hippie because I do want to create a sense of community. <laughs> yeah, I do. So it's, uh, it's part of who I am as a person is just, I really want us to move together and to work together as a community to make society and life better for everyone. I think it's really important. But that actually connects back to the setup of the center. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that some of this work actually originates in my life in academia. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about a thing called the Buffalo Project. So the Buffalo Project is a methodological framework that I came up with over the 15 of my 20 years of being a professor. It started when I was uh, in an administrative role in a college in Florida, and I kind of started thinking about it. So I'll tell you about it. It actually started with a class. This class was called U.S. History Through Ethnology. And basically, it grew out of a course that I taught in Florida where everyone in this class was a U.S. history course. There was only one student from the United States. All of the rest of the students were literally international. And so imagine if you come into a traditional course, people are, you know, you make these assumptions about kind of the traditional way of teaching history. And you're like, I'm going to teach about George Washington and founding fathers and all this kind of stuff. No one knew who they were except for one student. So the very first day of the class, um, just as a background about me and my degrees, so I have a separate history degree in my master's degree and my doctoral program, I'm an anthropological archaeologist, linguistics, linguist and historian. So I, I have kind of different degrees. So I, in this history course I was teaching, I pulled in anthropology. It was the first time I was trying to think like an interdisciplinarian. And so I went into this class and I said, hey, how many of you know these key quote unquote figures in U.S. history? And I created a survey the very first day of class. And I found out that less than 10% of them knew any of the names. And so I said, I can't teach a class this way. I'm going to lose all my students. So instead, I modified the class from the very beginning. And I said, this semester, I want you to be bringing in to me who are the major players in your cultures and societies. And let's share. This opened the door for empowerment of those individuals, because rather than saying that U.S. culture was more important than their cultures, I made it mutually reciprocitic. 
they were going to learn as much about the United States as the rest of the class was going to learn about their countries. As you can imagine, this class went incredibly well. People were like super excited about it. I brought it with me when I left Florida and I went to New York. It became the same course. So it was called U.S. History Through Ethnology. But I modified it a little bit because Buffalo at the time that I came there has always been ranked in the top 10 of most segregated cities. So I want you to know why this is important. You mentioned that I won that SUNY Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. I just won in Florida the same award for teaching in Florida uh, for being the top professor at the college that I was at. However, this is a difference. South Florida was really diverse. People were living together. You saw interracial relationships. I'm in an interracial relationship. But when I moved to Buffalo, you didn't see that. I lived in Buffalo for 11 years, and I think the first ever interracial couple I saw was the last two years I was living there. So nine years after living there. Wow. So I was saying, these are all the factors I need to think about. I'm probably, I was, I was also the youngest professor that they had seen. At the time, I was 29. I'd already been teaching for nine years in college. The average age of a professor in Buffalo at that time was 37. So they were never, they had never saw somebody young like myself, a multiracial woman who had so many accomplishments already under my belt, right? And so I knew that this would be weird for many people. I also knew I'm coming from California, where I'm originally from. I lived in Florida, desirable places to live, and I'm moving to Buffalo. So people were going to have these perceptions. I wanted to break all of them down. So the very first day of this class, I come in, and everybody in there is, you know, Buffalonians, they're all from these places. I'm like this oddity out. And the first thing I do to break the ice is, how do you know I'm Dr. Rihanna Rogers? Your first assignment is to go home, look me up, and tell me why I'm qualified to teach this course and come back. That was the first time where I said, and then also the next assignment in that course was, look up the authors of your textbooks. Why are they qualified to write them? Rather than, and this is how I combine this, rather than dehumanizing writing and dehumanizing me being as a professor, I rehumanized both and let people know writing is made by people. You're getting their perspectives. It was challenging them to critically think because the course that I had developed was how do we break down barriers, which was 100% a DEI course. This became incredibly popular. I will tell you this, the, the course became one of the most popular courses on campus. Literally, what we ended up finding out is that from developing the Buffalo Project, I started using surveys to survey students to find out what their gap areas were, soft skills, technological skills. And because I was making partnerships in the community, I started bringing in partners that could help with those things, whether it be presentations, whether it be a partnership. I actually created a loan system for textbooks in my office so you wouldn't have to buy books. Wow. So I had a loan system for computers, right? So you, you could come to my office, you could rent out a computer because you might not have it at home. One of the reasons I got I became so sufficient in educational technologies is that the campus that I was located on had racialized issues where people of color didn't want to go in that community. So I started developing courses online so that our students of color wouldn't feel they had to drive on campus and potentially be harassed so they could just work from home. So I kept thinking of creative ways to address the needs of students. We saw that in a matter of two and a half years, retention of incredibly diverse populace at that campus went up by 25%, which is unheard of. So this got the attention of SUNY and SUNY was like, we need you to be doing this at the central level. So SUNY State University of New York is the largest school system in the country, 64 schools. And I was asked into a role that was kind of a 
a hybrid of DEI and educational technology. And I worked across all 64 schools with the Buffalo Project to help people to recreate what I was creating. So I'll go back to being a happy hippie. I like to show our best practices because that's how we make things better. You know, it's not about keeping it to myself. It's like, let's figure out how to make this all better for everyone. Well, what was really cool about that is anybody who was adopting these practices, they also saw an increase in retention, about 1% on average. So this got the attention of more people. So people are like, what is she doing that's that's actually creating this? And I was asked at that time by the U.S. State Department, there's a thing called the Stevens Initiative. So for those who remember Benghazi, Benghazi crisis, Ambassador Stevens was the ambassador who was assassinated in Libya. And I was asked to come in on the Sunni side. And I was offered by, by my colleagues in the Middle East to be a visiting professor in the Middle East, but I was also on a role in SUNY, and I got to create my first micro-credential, which I can talk about that. But my micro-credential was around developing intercultural competencies, and I will share with Terrell a link to that. I've always made it an open educational resource. It's been out there since 2015. All you have to do is look up my name, and you can find it as well. But I wanted to create something that would build bridges. And it did. I mean, if you get a chance to look at the website, you'll see people from all over the world talking about building intercultural competencies together. Well, as that continued, I was then asked to join the Rockefeller Institute of Government, which is New York State's think tank, to help roll this out across New York State when I was there. And uh, this was in 2019, right at the shutdown. So what was really great about the model that I had already developed is it used a lot of educational technology before Everybody was learning about educational technology in 2020. So I became a consultant for Department of Education, a whole K-12, all of this stuff, because I had a model that was already engaging with people from a variety of spaces. That led me to be invited by the United Nations Geneva Forum to become a fellow. Um, I have to tell you jokingly, uh, I thought that their email looked like it was from 1992. I didn't think it was... <laughs> So, so formal, probably, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I, I don't think this is a this is really the UN. But they contacted me. They said, No, we really want you to speak about the Buffalo Project because it's it's so it's been around now for you know ten years at that point. And they said it's done so much for New York State. You now have it in five countries with the work that you're doing. You know, come and share it with us. Then I actually reached out to Rand and I said, Rand. Uh, I think I can help you. I heard that you're creating a center to advance racial equity policy. And so I actually started working, you know, consulting like lightly with um, VP Anita Chandra, I met, who is now retired, former president Michael Rich. And we started talking, I don't know, about maybe six months before I made the decision to take the job. But I started kind of consulting them about what kind of things can actually build a program from scratch. And so if you take a look at the, the actual three pillars of the center, they very much look like the Buffalo Project. And they look like the Buffalo Project for a reason. It's because I brought that model with me. And it's because I've been able to use it for 10 years and it's been so successful. Now what I've done is I took a project that was focused on a state and I'm now bringing it across the United States. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about the concept of narrative change, which, you know, this sort of framework of conversations that I'm having and, um, you know, thinking of like, you know, this sort of project in general is, is about. And, you know, I think as looking at, you know, your work and your methodology, one of your primary areas of expertise is in participatory action research. 
And when I start to think about ways to be able to start to change the narrative, I can't really think of a better way than to have, you know, one thing I always say is that the people are the experts in their own experience and participatory action research really is a way of being able to center that. Um, but how do you envision using it as a tool in your work? Is that narrative change a, a key reason why you use it? Uh, or are there um, other uh, usages for it that, that you found effective? Yeah, I think I'll give you an example of utilizing the Buffalo Project Framework from an actual program that I've built inside of the center. So there's a program called the Affiliates and Ambassadors Program. It's an internally facing program, and I'll explain why it has two titles in a second. But based on the Buffalo Project model, which is a very equity-centered research design, which utilizes participatory action research, as well as democratic dialogue, which I call deliberative conversations. It combines these, these two frameworks together underneath this umbrella of the Buffalo Project model. So let me give you an example of what someone in the affiliates program would go through. They go through three phases. Phase one of the work that I do is I look to see where you are in your process. Are, where do you sit on the spectrum of being equity-minded, which means that you're aware of equity principles, but you might not have a lot of resources, to being equity-centered, which means you have actually developed the theoretical frameworks, models, and you understand them. So it's, you've actually gone through training. I let people into this program and I let them self-identify. Where were they on this spectrum? That's how I actually tailored the program to each of these individuals. So they had micro-credentials they went through. So actually, uh, the RAND, my RAND colleagues went through the Developing Intercultural Competence micro-credential. They, <laughs> they went that. through it. Uh, they also went through an anti-racism micro-credential. And those two had to go first. That was phase one of their work. Prove to me where you are. You've told me where you are. But now apply and show me where you are. When you were entering into the program, you had to come up with a mini project. So you had to turn in a proposal. But at the end of that first phase, after you moved from being equity-minded to equity-centered, you had to revisit it. Now, there were two things that you had to do when you revisited it. You had to apply the new equity framework that you were given, whether it be participatory action research that you've now learned in some of these micro-credentials, whether it was anti-racism, whether it was intercultural competencies. It didn't matter to me because each researcher had their different entry point. Now, the other piece that I like to add on, which really comes from equity studies in phase two, is a concept that's emerging called gray literature. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, um, I actually share this quite often, but diversity in publication is actually quite poor. Uh, if you've never seen this, there's a really great study uh, that is titled, Where is Diversity in Publishing? There's a 2015 and a 2019 survey that was created by uh, Sarah Park Dalen uh, at St. Catharines University and Nicole Caitlin. I reference this study all the time because one of the things that they did that was well is they tracked diverse publications, all publications, not just focusing on academic publications. And what was a little bit disheartening when I came across this work back in 2015 and 2019 is that 70% of all written materials, I'm not just talking about academic, are written primarily by white women. And only 30% are created by everyone else. So just think about that. What I was concerned about in, in this space is that we need to be looking at what that other literature, which we call gray literature, 
is saying about a topic. Because if you only look at academic literature, it's going to potentially have a skewed view since that group is so homogeneous, right? It's not as diverse as you would like it to be. So after I had folks finish phase one and look back at their uh, proposals, I told them they had to go look at the great literature. They had to go out there and they had to find people who were writing about this beyond academia and look into places like newspapers, blogs, all those spaces where people are rapidly, social media, what are people actually saying about this? Then I also required them to interview three to five people, not just academics, because expertise and knowledge that's all equitably looked at inside of an equity-centered research design. You don't prioritize academia and leave out all the other voices, right? We know that that's a very small group of our society. So what was really fascinating in phase two is it's really challenging individuals' notions of knowledge. Who owns knowledge? Who owns knowledge? Who gets to speak about expertise? And then they had to revise this. So when they got to phase three, this was the final phase of this, you were required to pay it forward. You were required to bring on at least one to two junior people in your project and share with them the skills that I had talked to you, because that's also a piece of this Buffalo Project model. You recognize that you have the privilege of working in a space that others don't. And so part of that privilege is you have to recognize that you have to pay it forward. It's, a, it's what I call an ethical responsibility as being an equity-centered researcher. And so during that final phase, that's why they're called ambassadors. So phase one to two, they're affiliates. And this is when they're becoming ambassadors. This is when they now have gained the expertise. They've gone through a mini project. And now they're executing on their project and applying all the skills they learned in phase one and phase two, as well as mentoring the next generation of people and producing a final project. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, please, please, uh, share that link with me to the credential. I want to, I want to take it and I definitely want to share that with all the listeners as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, you're really kind of making me think of like two concepts right now. One would be the, the concept of decolonizing research, which, you know, your work has been doing before it became like a trendy thing for, you know, the field, of social science research to talk about. And then the other thing is making me think of is uh, one thing that my, my, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Christopher Emden, who's also a part of like this series too. But one thing that he often says is, you know, who gets to decide what questions are worthy of answers. And that's really what your work has been doing as well. And, and this is why like your, your approach, it, your approach to research, I admire so much because it, it's not about, and you even kind of, you know, said at the beginning of this, you're sort of the anti-doctor doctor, but you, you really do not have a, a desire to uh, center your voice and your expertise in what it is that you're doing. It really is about how you are using your positionality to open up doors and to open up spaces, to open up windows uh, or to create actually new pathways for others to be able to share their stories and their voice and, you know, for that, I, I want to say thank you. You know, you are definitely providing a way for the next generation of researchers to come through and, and be able to do uh, similar things. Um, and, you know, wh what's next? What's what's next for you? You know, I mean, what first of all, what barrier have you not already sort of broken down in the different fields from, you know, athletics, to academia to, you know, private 
but um and and actually government public too you know but you know what's what's next for you yeah so my statement i always say is i want to make the world a better place i haven't done that yet i haven't done that yet so i uh, i still feel like there's more to do i mean i'll tell you the next immediate thing that i'm doing is uh, I'm starting a national association for DEI. So uh, really think about this. We have a lot of smaller associations that deal with DEI, but we don't have one that gives a united voice to everyone. We don't have that. And so think about what that means. Like take a look and I'll tell you this of like the critical race theory debate. If we would have had a national association in place, the media would not have been able to drive what that theory means and how people use it. An association could have driven that. They could have explained as a united body about what fields it emerged from, who uses it. Like I will tell you, just for everybody out there, when I was in school, it wasn't part of my field of study to study critical race theory and anthropology or history. That is a theoretical framework that grew out of law, right? So it's not something that was actually part of any of my training. Now, it's become popular now, uh, and it's gone across many fields, and people are applying it. But imagine if you had a group of people that could provide that history and provide that context that actually are educated. So I'm looking for ways to, I would say, protect the industry, but at the same time of protecting the industry of also creating an idea of standards. What are the standards? What Who gets to say who is a DEI expert? Is it an outside entity? Is it us? Is it who? And I think we need some of those things because my biggest concern moving forward, and I think you you mentioned this well, Darrell, I'm always thinking about the next generation. I'm always thinking about them and I'm always thinking about how can we make it easier for them to succeed. And I think any type of scaffolding that we can provide, whether it be training, best practices, a safe space to kind of vent about the issues you're encountering so that you don't feel isolated in this space, you know, which I can say after being in it for 20 years, it can be isolating. Um, but this gives up that, that opportunity to create that sense of community. So that's, I think, where I'm at right now. I want to find a way, I, I give myself lofty goals, but I want to find a way to bring folks in DEI together, to kind of break down the silos that exist, to help people realize that if we work, you know, together across different, you know, industry lines, we can accomplish so much more together. Wow. You know, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, we we definitely see eye to eye on a lot of things, but there's there's one thing that I'm going to have to disagree with you on, and that's that you haven't made the world a better place. I think you have made the world a better place, uh, one, by being in it, and two, by allowing your light to shine through your work and being an example of what it means to be uh, a, a, a just individual using their skills and abilities to improve our planet. Um, and so you are making the world a better place. And we are all very thankful that you are in it doing this work. And, and you know, as an, an archaeologist by trade, also leaving behind these artifacts for us to find, you know, years down the road when we'll really see just how ahead of your time you actually are. So, you know, thank you so much for, for everything. Thank you for shining. And uh, thank you for being here and sharing your, your story and your work with, uh, with the audience. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words.
You know, I, I have to say to all of your listeners, it's been amazing meeting you. I mean, I think our paths crossing uh, in the art space and working in a space to create, you know, I, I was just talking with somebody yesterday about the idea that creative spaces like the arts are ways that people have the ability to express themselves more than other spaces. Um, for those, you know, uh, Darrell just brought up that I'm an archaeologist. My specialization is ceramics. So I myself am a ceramicist. I study archaeological ceramics. You know, I can identify different pastes and types from history. Um, and I focused on that because I know throughout the historical rec record, art is a way of expression in ways even people that might not read, that might not write, can actually express themselves. So it matters. And I think it's something really important for us to, to remember that the arts really are a section of culture where everyone can participate. Oh, thank you. Thank you for everything. Um, and please, please, please let people know how they can uh, follow some of the, the work that you're, you're doing at Rand or, uh, or elsewhere. Sure. So I'm really, really active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can see a lot of the stuff that I share uh, there regularly. I also have the Center to Advance Racial Equity Policy website, which is connected to RAND. So please just take a look at that. We also have the Forward newsletter, which is posted externally on my website. There's a link um, I can share all of these things with Darrell as well, so you can see them. Um, but yeah, please reach out. I have to tell you, uh, people are always shocked by this, but I respond to all emails. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I, I want you to know why, and I think this is important. If you truly are being equity-centered, everyone matters. Everyone matters. And so I, I take pride in the fact that it's really important for me to, to speak to anyone who reaches out. So please don't be afraid to contact me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful way to end it on. Thank you, Rihanna, for being here. It's my pleasure. You have just listened to another episode of Fluency with Dr. Darrell Cooper. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to follow us on all major streaming platforms as well as on all of our social media channels for Cultural Innovation Group and Darrell Cooper. And remember, the journey to liberation starts with loving yourself. And those are doctor's orders.